This podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church of Diana, Texas. If you're in East Texas, you can gather with us on Sundays at 10.15 a.m. You can find more episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on our website, www.fbcdiana.org. Thanks for listening. Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd be really glad for you to open those up with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 8 is where we are going to be today. Just the first four verses, really, we're kind of uh, pulling back into where we've been already and and bringing us to the place of understanding what's happening there in Acts chapter 8. If you brought your own Bible, then that's great. If you haven't, there should be a hardback black one like this, not too far away from you. And if you're looking for Acts chapter 8, you'll find it on page 861, 861. On February the 12th, 1554, Jane Grey was 17 years old. She had been the Queen of England for nine days, placed there by the political efforts of some Protestants in England who'd hoped that she'd be able to maintain England's uh, trajectory toward Reformation. But Mary Tudor had returned from a sort of exile back to England, and she had a stronger claim to the crown. Mary also had a deep commitment to the Roman church, and she blamed Protestants for the ill treatment of her mother, who was one of the unfortunate wives of King Henry VIII. Jane was sentenced to death for treason, as were many Protestants condemned to die under what's known to history as Bloody Mary, under her rule. That's how she earned the name. But before Jane died, maybe only hours before, she wrote a letter to her sister, uh, which she sent along with an English translation of the Bible. I want to read just a little portion of that letter that she wrote. She said, I have sent you, my dear sister Catherine, a book. On the outside, it is not trimmed with gold, but inside it is worth more than precious jewels. It is the book, dear beloved sister, of the law of the Lord. It is his testament and last will, which he left for us poor sinners. And it will lead you to the path of eternal joy. If you read it with a good mind and follow it with an earnest desire, it will bring you an immortal and everlasting life. It will teach you, she said, how to live and how to die. If you study diligently this book, using it as a guide for your life, You will inherit great riches that the covetous will never take from you. The thief will never steal and the moth will never destroy. She went on. Desire, sister, to understand the law of the Lord your God. Live to die that by death you may enter into eternal life. And then enjoy the life that Christ has gained for you by his death. And then she admonished her sister. Don't think that just because you are now young, your life will be long. 17 years old and she's facing facing death herself. She went on to say, the young and the old die as God wills. As for my death, rejoice as I do, my dear sister. And consider that I shall be delivered of this corruption and put on incorruption. Quoting scripture there. For I am sure that I will, she said. Farewell, my beloved sister. Put your trust only in God, for he alone can help you. I wonder why Christians in times past have talked of hope and deliverance and life in the face of torture and death. I wonder why Chinese Christians today, some of them, write songs of joy singing about their prison cell as being a door to life and freedom, even as they suffer under the boot heel of tyrannical government leaders. Well, today we're going to read about the very first uh, real persecution against Christians in the world. We've read a little bit of it already in Acts chapter 7, but as we get to chapter 8, there is a much wider and more pervasive persecution that is unleashed on Christianity. I pray that God would help us to think through the context in which these Christians were living, what it was they were facing, and what example they give us for how we might face persecution 
as Christians in the world. May God grant us humility and wisdom as we consider this passage. And may God instruct and compel us to live as faithful Christian witnesses as well. I'm going to read Acts chapter 8, starting with verse 1, but I'm actually going to back up a little bit to help us remember the context. You might recall that Stephen was arrested. He was, he was charged with uh, these accusations that were sort of trumped up against him. And in the end, Stephen essentially preached a message of judgment against those who were aiming their persecution guns at him. And we're going to pick up at the very end of his message. I'm going to start actually in Acts chapter 7, verse 51. So if you'll back up there with me. And would you mind standing as I read this, our primary passage for today? One of our ways we show respect for God's word is we stand where we read the primary passage. Thanks for doing that. So I'm starting in Acts chapter 7, verse 51. And chapter 8, verse 1 is actually our, our primary text. But let's read. Acts chapter 7, verse 51. Stephen said, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you now have betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears, and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house, to house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered about went, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Thank you, God, for your word. You can all be seated. I know that there might be something of a paragraph break after verse three, and verse four really begins the next portion, explaining Philip and those who spread the word. But I think there's something important for us today to gather with these four verses collected together. Verse 1, 2, 3, and 4 of chapter 8. The main point of my message today, uh, seeking to draw this out from the text in its context and in the cultural context in which it was given and applying it to our own situation, is, the main point, is that persecution to one degree or another is inevitable for faithful Christians. But this in no way hinders God's plans or his word which is manifest in the lives of his people. Persecution to one degree or another is inevitable in the lives of faithful Christians. But this in no way hinders God's plan or his word, which is manifest in the lives of his people. Those who like to take notes, there are really going to be two points today with several subpoints underneath those. The two points are real life persecution, and then secondly, the exemplary Christian witness of these Christians that we find here in Acts chapter 7 and 8. So first, let's look at it, a real Christian persecution. And let's, let's consider not only our passage for today, but really the whole background to it. If you look back to Acts chapter 4, especially in verses 1 and 2, you see that Peter and John were arrested for teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, this is where the persecution really turned hot against the Christians. There may have been some social difficulties they were facing up to that point, but this is, the, this is the only clear manifestation that we see in the book of Acts, the first clear manifestation that we see of 
of opposition, of, of official persecution against the church. Later on, Peter and John, these leaders, pastors of the Christian church there in Jerusalem, they were intimidated by the civil and religious authorities, and they were ordered not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. This is Acts chapter 4, verse 18. And then, after all the Christians in Jerusalem prayed for boldness to continue making disciples, preaching and teaching in the name of Christ, despite the commands to do the opposite, Peter and the rest of the apostles were arrested yet again in Acts chapter 5. Now, we're, we're told about this interesting episode, this miracle, where Peter and the rest of the apostles there were miraculously delivered from prison, and they go right back to doing what they were doing before, preaching and teaching. But they were arrested yet again and then brought before the civil, religious, uh, civil and religious council. This is Acts chapter 5, verses 19, 26, 27. Uh, after that episode where they're there in front of the, the council where it's the civil and religious leaders. Remember, these things are combined in early, uh, in these, this early church time. Really throughout human history, civil and religious, uh, I'm sorry, yes, yeah, civil and religious leader, leadership has been combined, uh, very typically. It's uncommon to have those two things distinct from one another. A sort of the American experiment was the first time that I'm aware of in human history where there's been a religious and civil divide between those who are the leaders of the state, the civil institutions, the government, and those who are the leaders or or those who are the members of the religious institution. So those who are the leaders of both institutions, civil and religious, are the ones who who are commanding that the apostles and the Christians there not speak or teach in the name of Jesus. Now they're arrested for for a third time. They're brought before this council. They're beaten for their trouble. And then they're released, but they're ordered yet again not to speak in the name of Jesus. Of Jesus. But despite all this ratcheting up of persecution that's happening there in Jerusalem, we read in Acts chapter 5, verses 41 and 42, that they, the, uh, the apostles there, they left the presence of the council after being beaten and warned, and they rejoiced that they, the apostles, the Christians, had been counted worthy to suffer, to suffer dishonor for the name, that is, for the name of Christ. They counted it a, re, a, a reason for rejoicing that they would be so closely associated with Jesus that they would follow in his footsteps of suffering. And as it continues on there in verse 42 of Acts chapter 5, every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So they continued teaching, preaching in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But let's don't pass by too quickly this phrase, the Christ is Jesus. This is really shorthand for the gospel. Their message was not a mere message of Jesus as the exemplary uh, philosopher or guru. It wasn't that Jesus has just kind of a new way of living. Their message was centered on the fact that God had been proclaiming for centuries that there was going to come one who was a Messiah or a Christ, an anointed one, who was going to resolve the conflict that existed between sinful humanity and a holy God. God is holy and he created everything good in the beginning, but humanity has sinned against God and thereby been driven out of his presence because humans are not welcome anymore because they're sinful. God cannot allow sin to continue. Otherwise, he's not just. He's not good because he lets sin go unpunished. So he drives sinners out of his presence. They're not allowed to come in any longer But even back there at the very beginning, God gives something of a foreshadowing of what is to come. God covers the nakedness of those very first humans. He covers their nakedness, which now is shame because they've sinned against God. He covers them with the skins of an animal. The implication is is that something died. As the Old Testament unfolds, there's death after death after death of animals in the place of guilty sinners. Showing that death does have to occur because sin has happened but also showing the reality that God is a God who is merciful and gracious, not killing immediately those who've sinned against him. He promises again and again that this Messiah, this Christ, this anointed one, he's going to come and he's going to solve the problem of guilty sinners before a holy God. And ultimately, Jesus steps onto the scene. This one who is not merely a good man, who's not just a good teacher or philosopher, but who is the son of God and God the son. He lives the perfect life, obeying God's laws perfectly, 
showing perfect righteousness, perfect holiness, moral uprightness before God. But he's the one who dies as a guilty sinner. Counted guilty not only by the people around him, but by the God of the universe, his, his heavenly father. Jesus is the one who's counted as guilty so that those who are actually guilty could under him go free and be counted as righteous. This is the great exchange of the gospel. The very core of Christianity is that the God of the universe has given his son to take the place of guilty sinners like you and me so that we don't have to be judged where we stand, but instead can find freedom and life and grace and even God's own blessing and favor, not because we are good, but because Jesus is good. This was their message, which in the first place is condemning of everyone everywhere. What does this message message suggest to every human everywhere? You're not good enough. You can't save yourself. You can't do anything to make yourself right before God. And this message was incredibly offensive. Therefore, the Christians, like their their master before them, Jesus himself, were suffering underneath this persecution. In Acts chapter 6, verse 7, we see a sort of concluding statement to Luke's opening section of the book of Acts. There's this phrase in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Luke uses this kind of phrase at least four times, maybe five throughout the book of Acts. Acts chapter 6, verse 7, chapter 9, verse 31, chapter 12, verse 24, and chapter 19, verse 20. You don't have to remember all of those, but it's just to say that at each point throughout Luke's unfolding of the storyline of the book of Acts, he sort of summarizes the spread of the gospel in any one particular geographical location or to a certain ethnic group. He summarizes it by saying that the word of God spread, it multiplied, it grew, that the word itself is growing. Next then begins the section that we're in today. So Acts chapter 6 verse 8 begins this next section, which we're still in with Acts chapter 8 verse 1. And it's there in Acts chapter 6 verse 8 that Stephen is targeted specifically for persecution. This persecution is is getting hotter and Stephen is singled out for some reason or another. There were some, we're told, who rose up against Stephen specifically, but they could not withstand, we're told, Acts chapter 6, verses 10 and 11, they could not withstand his wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So they secretly instigated some other men who would accuse him. Very similar to what Jesus faced, it seems, when he was betrayed and arrested. We talked a bit more about that when we were walking through that portion of the text. It's interesting, though, that Stephen didn't defend himself. His message that he, that he essentially preaches of judgment against those who are persecuting him is not a message of his own defense. But it is a message of condemnation against those who are persecuting him. A fascinating display. P, uh, Stephen says that uh, in Acts chapter 7, verses 51 and 52, as we've read just a moment ago, he accuses them of doing just as their fathers had done. As your fathers did, so do you, he said. And then he says, which of the prophets did you not persecute? He's essentially saying, look, you're doing exactly like those who have gone before you. The climax of this whole episode is what we read again, just a moment ago, is that these civil and religious leaders, when they heard what Stephen was telling them, they did not repent. They did not feel their their sense of guilt. They did not have any remorse, but rather they closed their ears. They made noise with their mouths. So there's no way that what Stephen said could be heard. And then they rush at him and murder. They stoned him to death outside the city. Then, Getting to our passage here today, finally, this last sort of climax of the ratcheting up of persecution is that after Stephen's faithful stand, now persecution is really amplified. And we see in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, that there arose on that day, on the day Stephen was murdered outside the camp, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Verse 3 even tells us that this one particular character named Saul seems to be something of a head or a leader in this persecution because it's him 
and those under him who were ravaging the church and entering house to house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. As I said, it seems like Saul is a sort of a leader in this whole, in this whole persecution event. One commentator said that the fact that the witnesses laid their clothes at Saul's feet suggests that he was the acknowledged leader of the opposition to Stephen. This wasn't clear to me. It was something that others have looked at and known maybe a bit more about the background than I did. But it is clear that Saul was from Cilicia, which is where some of those who attacked Stephen came from. And he is definitely one, he is definitely the, the leader of the persecution. He's the one who's named as being the persecutor or the main persecutor. Uh, this one commentator even uh, uh, speculated that maybe he could have been among those uh, that Stephen was disputing in the synagogue. Regardless of that situation, uh, Saul is sort of this leader in the persecution and the persecution was was in, it was increasing and it was at a climactic point. So we read in, in verse 1 that the persecution was great. This is a superlative descriptor. It's great maybe in its severity, maybe in its harshness, maybe in, this, in the widespread nature of the persecution, or maybe all the above. It is a great persecution. Verse 3 gives us some explicit details about this persecution, that men and women are being dragged off to prison. And this certainly would have had all sorts of negative effects. Social instability, economic hardship, family dysfunction, and even civil and political ostracism. We're told in verse 1 that this persecution, it was so great that it caused all the Christians except the apostles to flee from Jerusalem. Now, it's interesting to note that Stephen was one of the seven men who were full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit who were assigned to the task of deaconing among the church there in Jerusalem. You might recall when we look at that passage, the very first several uh, verses of chapter 6, that all seven of those guys, Stephen being one of them, were Hellenists. Uh, They were Jew by ethnicity, but they were culturally and linguistically Greek. So they were Hellenized Jews. It is interesting that the apostles, who were all Hebraic Jews, ethnically and linguistically culturally Jewish, They were the ones who stayed in Jerusalem. It's very likely, I think, that the primary aim of the persecution against Christians there in Jerusalem was aimed at the Hellenistic Jews, these who were culturally different than the Jews uh, who were the Hebraic Jews, uh, those even uh, who shared the culture uh, among Christians and uh, those who rejected Christ as the Messiah. They still would have had a lot of cultural similarities. Uh, It seems that that's the case also because it's not the entire church in Jerusalem that is actually decimated because the church in Jerusalem still plays a big role later on in the book of Acts, especially in Acts chapter 15. Uh, All of that is to say, though, uh, that that the church was not totally destroyed in Jerusalem, but it certainly was being destroyed. And that's what we see there in verse three is the church in Jerusalem was being ravaged or made havoc of or destroyed. This was the aim. This was a rapidly growing megachurch. Think about this. 10,000 plus members, maybe as many as 20 or more. And this whole church was being decimated. Now, friends, this is a good reminder that Christ has promised that his church will prevail in the end. Christ has promised that his kingdom will last, that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But Jesus has not promised that any local church will not decline or even die. Local churches decline and die all the time. So while we can find great hope and contentment and security and comfort in the fact that Jesus and his people in the end win, we should also think with realistic minds about our own particular local church. Sometimes a church... um, being destroyed or declining or dying is due to outside opposition because the culture around comes against the local church. Sometimes it's due to that local church being so lax with sin and true doctrine among its own ranks that Jesus himself comes in judgment on that local church and puts out its candle as Jesus warns in the book of Revelation. Sometimes it's not seemingly due to any uh, real sin, but maybe just the 
ebb and flow of population growth, geography, economics. So it's not to say that a church that dies or declines is because of persecution or because of sin. It's just to say that these are all various factors. And before we go on to point number two, let's recognize that this is real life persecution. So those folks who are in charge of the courts and the police, they were forbidding gospel preaching and teaching. They were threatening imprisonment and even throwing Christians in jail. They were doling out capital punishment for those who spoke up about the persecutor's actions. And they were taking explicit aim at ravaging or destroying the local church. That's real life persecution. That's what persecution looks and tastes and feels like. So I'd like to ask you for a moment, brothers and sisters, what comes to your mind when you think about persecution? I've heard a lot of folks who claim to be Christians talking about persecution. Because of the cultural shifting winds in the Western world, Christians are in the West talking about persecution. Is is this the kind of persecution that we're facing right now? I heard a Chinese pastor this last week, he'd fled uh, just a short time ago uh, to the United States, and he said that the persecution in China is worse today than he can remember, and that it is getting worse. In some places, he said, pastors are being imprisoned for lengthy periods, sometimes years. Church buildings are being destroyed, and Christian literature, including the Bible, is banned. The Chinese Communist Party is aiming for the destruction of biblical Christianity in China. According, according to a magazine called Voice of the Martyrs that also hosts a website, uh, India is a country that is hostile to Christianity. Some states in India are more aggressive than others, but the same features of persecution that I mentioned in China, pastors being imprisoned, uh, biblical literature being uh, banned, and the, all sorts of uh, uh, difficulties with local churches, including their buildings being destroyed. These same things are going on in various places in India. I think Christians in America should be really thankful this is not happening to us. I think we should be so thankful to God that he's given us the, the, the cultural situation in which we, we now find ourselves. I think we should also recognize that what we're enjoying in the Western world is not the norm across human history. And it's not really even by, by sheer matter of numbers. It's not the norm in the world today. So I think it should, it should help us recalibrate our perspective and our expectations a little bit. And if we are expecting, if we should expect the persecution, the real life persecution to, to be amplified against Christians in the Western world in the not too distant future, well, then I'd like to ask you, how are you preparing yourself to face such a thing? How are you gearing up for that? How are you setting your mind and your heart in order to be ready to meet such persecution? How are you preparing your kids to live a life as a Christian adult in a hostile culture? These are questions we need to consider. And I think we find a great example right here in our text this morning. Point number two, exemplary Christian witnesses. I told you there were only two points. Don't get too worried that we've already spent a lot of time on point number one. This exemplary Christian witness, uh, this example that we have in our passage and in the context, I'd like to point out just a few things in which they, they provide for us a great example. The first thing I'd like to point out as their example is that they prayed for boldness. This is not in our main passage, but it's all part of the background. And so recall that after the first sign of real persecution, when Peter and John were arrested for the first time, the church immediately gathered to pray. This is in Acts chapter 4, verses 24 and following. And they prayed like this. Sovereign Lord who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. And they talked about how there were those who gathered against Christ in order to, to put him to death. And then there were those who were threatening them personally, these Christians. In verse 29, they pray that God would look upon the threats, that is the threats of the civil and religious leaders, and that God would grant to your servants, that is to them, to the Christians, to continue to speak your word with all boldness. So they knew that God was the sovereign Lord who planned 
and predestined everything Jesus had suffered and all that they themselves were experiencing. And they knew that they had been commissioned by Christ to be his witnesses in the world, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And they knew they'd been given the only word which can bring life from death, light from darkness, can make people love God and love his people when once they hated them. So they prayed for God's help and they prayed for God's power in order that they might continue to speak the word of God with boldness, even though they'd been threatened not to do so. And what a wonderful example I think this is for us today. We too must remember that God is the sovereign Lord who who ordains or predestines or decrees whatsoever comes to pass. So we must remember that our circumstances are not accidental. That God is the sovereign Lord. He knows what he's doing and he's put us in the time, in the cultural context. He's given us the life experiences that we have right now. It is by design. And we must remember that in the midst of all of that, the circumstances we find ourselves, the skills, talents, resources we have, that the commission that Christ gave to his first disciples has remained the same throughout the centuries. Still today, we share the same commission as those early Christians to be Christ's witnesses in the world. So then, we have to pray because we can't do any of this on our own power. We can't stand against opposition in our own power. We can't remain faithful in the midst of difficulties in our own power. We can't be those who would speak with boldness even when there might be, di- might be opposition or, or hostility or, or, or uh, negative results for doing so. We can't do that in our own power. So we need God's help. And therefore, we must pray just as they did. A second feature of their exemplary Christian witness is in the fact that they did not go to war, but they did flee hostility to culturally familiar places. So kind of two parts to this exemplary characteristic of theirs. The first one is that they did not defend their property, their rights, or even their freedom. Now, it's not said they did not go to war in the passage, but it's strongly implied in what we see in Acts chapter 8. Also see elsewhere in the Bible that there is commendation given to Christians to suffer even unjustly in order to remain faithful to Christ. So the author of Hebrews commends Christians, for example, for enduring a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated, even joyfully accepting the plundering of their property. Peter goes so far as to say in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 to 21, when you do good and suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God, he says. In fact, he says, for to this, to do good and to suffer for it, to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. This is just a small sampling of passages like that. We could go all morning long looking at how the New Testament calls Christians to be prepared to suffer. So brothers and sisters, especially those of you who claim the name of Christ, do you expect to suffer for doing good? Do you expect to suffer for honoring Christ with your life? This flies in the face of the, of the commonly passed off gospel in America today that joins the American dream to the gospel of Christ, which are antithetical to one another. As though somehow if we follow Jesus well enough, then we will have all of the blessings by the way the world counts blessings. You know, a decent bank account, a nice size house, a, a decent car, you know, life going pretty well for us, all, uh, health going all right. That somehow or another, as a Christian, we should expect to have blessings and favor as the world counts such things. Health and wealth and prosperity. The New Testament teaches us something entirely different to that expectation. 
do you have a New Testament expectation of Christianity? And again, if so, how are you preparing to meet persecution? How are you preparing to endure it? When it comes for you, when it comes for your family, when it comes for your church. Now, really quickly, I don't think that this means that Christians, as citizens of any nation state in which they live, should not defend human life and dignity and even personal property at times. There, there is warrant to do that. Throughout the Bible, we could find warrant to defend life and, and human dignity. But I think, though, for the context of our passage this morning, we as Americans, and especially as sinners, not unique to Americans, it's, it is a sinful characteristic, we are probably more likely to think in terms of protecting our property and our freedoms than we are likely to think in terms of giving up or losing our property and our freedoms for the sake of a good Christian witness. So we, we I think, over lunch today would have a good conversation if we talked with the person across from us and said, hey, at what point or in what circumstances would Christians do well to no longer defend themselves, even if they're going to suffer for it, in order to give a good Christian witness? I think that'd be a really fruitful conversation. And though these early Christians did not fight, they also didn't hang around to be punching bags. And this is kind of the second portion of that, of that characteristic. So they, they, didn't, they didn't defend their property but they also didn't stay in order to endure harsher persecution. They left. They fled. We're told in verse 1, they scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now, there's a lot of uh, historical background there to those two regions that we may or may not know. Uh, but essentially, these were culturally familiar places to anyone who had a Jewish lineage, even Hellenized Jews. So uh, Judea was the broader region around Jerusalem. Think Upshur County and Diana. Uh, Samaria was the area north, which at one time was the kingdom of Israel that was part of the divided kingdom after David and Solomon. Again, a lot of historical baggage there. But essentially, both of these regions were historically, uh, culturally Jewish. There would have been a lot of cultural familiarity in both of these places. And that's where these Christians fled. Again, at this time, in case you didn't remember this, at this time in the unfolding of God's plan of redemption, all the Christians there in Jerusalem were Jewish, or a very few number of them were God-fearers who, who were non-Jewish. They were, they were of some other ethnicity, but they were living as Jews uh, under the Mosaic covenantal laws. Now, it seems to me, though, that, that Christians of every age are wise to consider how geography or culture or government might make Christian living either more or less difficult for them. So, for example, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, we are instructed to pray that we might lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. In other words, Christians should try to live life without persecution, without major spectacle, and without hindrance to our growth in godliness. So, when thinking about a location or a career for their kids, I wonder why many Christians in America seem more concerned about job opportunities or earning power than they seem concerned about the possible spiritual effects or limitations of a particular culture or geography where they're sending their kids off. Think about your own situation. When you moved the last time you did that, at what point, you know, you probably did some research on the place where you were moving to. You looked up uh, maybe uh, how much you're going to have to pay in property taxes. Uh, you looked up how are the local schools, uh, what kind of uh, shopping is available nearby, how close is the uh, closest grocery store. Maybe even you looked at uh, crime statistics or voting patterns. At what point, when you were thinking about where you're going to geographically move, did you start thinking about how close is the nearest healthy church to my new location? Was that even a thought in your mind before you moved? before you decided on where you're about to set down roots for you and your family? Or did you wait until you were all the way connected in your new community before you even started thinking about, oh, let's, let's think about a church now. Why is that? How about when you urge your kids or your grandkids into a certain career path? Do you think much about how friendly or how hostile that career path might be to them spiritually? 
Think about it with me for a minute. Is it easier or harder to be a faithful Christian as a doctor, as a school teacher, as a soldier, as an administrator in a corporate office, as a computer tech, as a small business owner, or any number of other careers we might think about? Is it easier or harder to be a faithful Christian in any of these career paths? And depending on whether or not it's easier or harder to be a faithful Christian, how are we preparing our kids and our grandkids to enter in to those professions, knowing what they're going to face? Now, I want to offer a brief caveat to all that I've been saying just now about fleeing persecution. Nobody in his right mind or her right mind wants to go into persecution just just for the fun of it. Uh, The real life persecution that we've been considering this morning is, is horrific. And yet... The biggest heroes of the Christian faith are those who have sacrificed their own freedoms and comforts in order to bring the gospel to those who don't have it. Even to places that are hostile to biblical Christianity. So I don't want to say that it's always best for Christians to flee persecution. It's certainly something that wouldn't be counted as sinful, The Bible gives room for Christians fleeing persecution in order to live a quiet and peaceful life. But could God be calling maybe even somebody or a family here today to give up the personal comforts and freedoms that we enjoy in the culture in which we live to go somewhere else or to engage in a hostile situation for the sake of the gospel? A third characteristic of their exemplary Christian witness is they remembered their commission to be Christian witnesses as they went. So they didn't just flee the hostile situation. They remembered what they're put on earth to do. Verse 4 tells us that when they, they were scattered, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. It, it's, it's interesting to note, it's not one of my primary emphases this morning, but it's interesting to note Who were those who were left in Jerusalem? The apostles, the leaders, the word ministry leaders of the church. Who was it that were scattered about? Probably Hellenized Jewish Christians. Probably those who didn't have a primary or official teaching ministry in the church in Jerusalem. And yet they are the ones who are remembering their commission to go out and to preach the word. Now, this is exactly as Christ had commanded. Jesus commissioned all of his disciples, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. Jesus commissioned his disciples to make disciples of all nations, of all ethnicities, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Christ himself had commanded. And Luke summarizes the same kind of commission at the beginning of the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus tells his disciples there, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And as I said before, this commission is not just for first century Christians, but it is for the people who follow the Lord Jesus Christ in this world of every generation. The commission remains the same. And just as those early Christians understood their citizenship in Christ's kingdom to include a job description, an office, a role of ambassador, so too is every Christian in every generation a pilgrim ambassador of the true king of this world until King Jesus returns and makes all things new. So I wonder, do you live as though Jesus really is the king? Do you live as a citizen of this world, primarily, or do you live as a pilgrim ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what would that look like? How would you know the difference? Notice also the central focus of their Christian witness. It isn't merely living as faithful Christians morally. That's certainly an aspect of it. But they went about, verse 4, preaching the word. They opened their mouths and they told people the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Now, remember, this is exactly, this preaching of the word is exactly what they were commanded 
not to do by those in authority over them. This, I think, should serve as an example for us when we are confronted with government mandates and laws. But let's think about this for just a second. Let's don't just have a quick Sunday school answer. Many of the laws in our land are in complete agreement with Christian or biblical principles, such as the holding of private property, the preservation of human dignity, the allowance of or the right of religious freedom. For these, as I've already said, I believe we as Christians in the West and especially in the United States of America should be exceedingly grateful. We should thank God for these things, or we should pray that God preserve these laws and even cause them to expand. Some of the laws in our land are not explicitly biblical, but they're also not burdensome for Christians to embrace. So, for example, the Bible doesn't speak uh, obviously about the minimum age at which someone can sign a legal contract or where uh, voting precincts lines are, are designated. But these laws are not generally burdensome for Christians to follow. So in, this, in cases like this, where there's a, a law in our land that, that is not explicitly mentioned in the Bible or, or not even uh, something that is directly impacted by a biblical teaching, but is a, an application of uh, wisdom of all sorts, and it's not burdensome for Christians, I think what we should do is happily submit to such laws and we should aim to be the best citizens. Jerome, whenever he argued back in the, uh, the uh, demise of the Roman Empire, he argued that, look, you shouldn't, you shouldn't think of Christians as being, as being usurpers of the, of the, the uh, societal stability that we have. Uh, Christians are the best citizens. He said, they're the ones who want to follow the laws of the emperor. So long as the emperor isn't at war with Jesus, Christians are not at war with the emperor. I think this is something that Christians ought to regain as a cultural apologetic. We should aim to be the best citizens in every situation that we can. However, some laws in our land do make legal allowances. Notice how I'm going down a progression here. Some laws in our land do make legal allowances for things that God forbids. For example, abortion is murder, despite what any uh, justice or legal legislation would say in our nation. God has instituted marriage as a lifelong union of one biological man with one biological woman, regardless of how American legislators might try to redefine marriage. In the face of these kinds of laws, we as Christians should obey God's law. We should personally urge those that we know and love to submit to God's law. And we should aim as best as we're able, using the political uh, uh, levers that we have, to try to move toward greater submission to God's law in our nation. Even as we live lovingly and charitably beside those who do not submit to God's law. Finally, there may come a day when some American laws forbid what God commands or command what God forbids. This is what was happening in Acts. You will not teach in the name of Jesus. And Peter says, ah, when it comes to obeying the law of men or the laws of God, we have to obey God. So when any worldly authority be it politician or judge or school teacher or parent or police officer or employer, when they stand in direct opposition to God's positive or negative command, you must or you must not, when those two things, when God says one thing and the, the authority says something completely opposite, when they clash, we Christians are obligated to humbly, emphasis on that word, humbly, and courageously disobey the worldly authority that's calling us to disobey God. It's my prayer that God would help us to consider the best way on how to do that kind of stuff and how to think through what exact situation should we overstep that boundary. This will require much wisdom, much humility, much charity. I think we're, we're helped a lot by uh, having a local church around us with fellow brothers and sisters that we can, we can think this through together with. Lastly, under this point of there being an exemplary Christian witness, let's notice that God's plan 
was exactly for those early Christians to spread the gospel in Judea and Samaria. And it seems, it is apparent by the unfolding of history, that it was God's use of persecution to spread them out in Judea and Samaria so that they would spread the word. There is a saying we're thinking about, and the saying goes like this, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. As I said before, no one wants to go into persecution. I sure don't. And no one is looking forward to that day. But under God's providence, it was exactly through the use of persecution that the gospel spread. This should warn us from clinging too tightly or focusing too strongly on any one particular church, local church, or any one particular nation. I'm so glad for First Baptist Diana. But if this church was destroyed and spread out in the world tomorrow, it would in no way thwart God's plans. God is the sovereign king, and he does what he wills with his people. Our task remains the same. Persecution, to one degree or another, is inevitable for faithful Christians. But this in no way hinders God's plans or his word, which is manifest in the lives of his people. And may I add, his faithful people. May God. We trust that this message edified the listener and glorified the God who shows love and mercy to sinners in the person and work of Jesus Christ, his son. Would you take a moment to leave a positive rating for us on your podcast app? You'll be helping others find this episode and more like it. If you'd like more information about First Baptist Diana, then please visit our website, www.fbcdiana.org.